This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Hi, uh, this is Lynn of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and we're doing our special series today, Unmask, uh, which is talking about issues, uh, psychological issues related to COVID. And today we're going to focus on, on two important areas, are the teenagers out there, the adolescents, the young people who are struggling with a lot of things during this period. And second, uh, partly because our president has contracted COVID, we're going to be talking about uh, the effects and the side effects of the medicines that are used for treatment of COVID. And the effects are kind of equally important because lots of us have seen family members struggling with COVID and psychological issues. Yeah, I think that was a great summary of everything that we're going to talk about today. I don't know if we've hit it all, but these are these are big topics, Jen. They really are. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot to cover. I don't know that we'll get to all of it, but I think we can touch on some of the important issues for people to think about and know about. And you brought up the issue with me earlier about teenagers and how COVID is really impacting on their identity right now. You know, many teens are going through these developmental steps of trying to consolidate an identity, move away from their parents, and yet they're stuck at home, only feet away from the same parents they're trying to establish a separate identity from. Right. I mean, that's exactly it. A lot of these people are back home, and I think what I've seen is most challenging it for the clients I'm working with are the ones who were really excited to go off to college and are now back at home because I think the internal shift around our our sense of how we build independence is very much tied to being able to escape the family environment at least temporarily. And so finding yourself home and still navigating that independence definitely has new challenges that a lot of people have not had to deal with in addition to their own transition out of their childhood home. How do you see that show up with the kids? I mean, I've got a couple of kids I'm working with who are off at college and they're 18, 19, and they're finding it harder because they have to remain mask, not unmask, but mask, and negotiate meeting other kids, maybe dating, uh, you know, all of these tough things away from parents. And they're having much harder time too. Huh, interesting. I don't have any clients who are currently in schools. So what I'm seeing is, I guess, kind of a different aspect, which is that I think parents and children are having difficulties navigating boundaries around what is appropriate in terms of expectations, 
um, what is appropriate in terms of like the internal family expectations, but also the expectations around how often does a teen get to see their partner? How often, you know, are they spending time at home in their room versus with the family? And I think all of this has its challenges even more so because when people get stressed as we are stressed by so many things with the pandemic and fires and all the other you know the presidential election and all of it i think that people handle their stress differently and i've dealt with a lot of family issues around controlling other people in order to create stability what would you say to uh parents uh, who have as as many parents do, they have a teenager and the teenager wants their partner to visit the family home. And because before this, the teen's partner was hanging out in the family home, having dinner occasionally, but mostly in the teen's room doing stuff with the teen. So what's going to, what goes with that now? How do you handle that? I mean, I think it's an ideal time to practice a lot of the conversational skills and also risk assessment that is so important to being a teen, right? So I think instead of being the parent and saying, this is how it must go, how do you sit down with your teen and have a discussion about like, hey, here are my concerns. Are these your concerns? If they're not your concerns, like here's why they're my concerns. And if they if the teen already has those concerns, like how do you talk through different possibilities? I think it's a, actually a great opportunity to shift the relationship towards one of more respect. And I think when I've seen this going well, it, it's really incredible how it develops a closer bond between the parent and the child. And then I've also seen this go terribly, in which case there's a lot of anger and yelling and shouting and trying to dominate the other person. So I think it's it's actually a great time, though, where you can really look at your own way of communicating and how you manage stress and all of these things. So I think the way I look at any crisis is always like you're not asking for the crisis, but since it's here, like what can you learn from it and how can you develop skills to help yourself manage the ability to navigate these complex relational dynamics? So you're really working with both the dean and the parent around it and helping them to set up some guidelines and at least open a line of communication about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, given what our original podcast topic is all about, it's really about that communication. And I think people often mistake communication for being the other person has to hear what I have to say. And that's a very ineffective way to communicate, right? It's really about growing understanding and building clarity and it's hard to build clarity if you haven't done your own reflection too. And so I think what I see come up in the dynamics where there's a lot of yelling and shouting is that these are the people who haven't done that much of their own insight into what it is they actually want or what their actual expectations are. And so it's very easy to kind of get derailed and, and just flustered and frustrated and blame the other person. 
I think the blaming is a really big part of it. I, I do see that. I have a, a young teen as a patient now, and she actually had COVID. Mm. And her response, you know, a lot of the young people and, and the older people who've had COVID are anxious. And she's kind of now holed down in her bedroom as mm. a safety measure. She's up on her bunk bed. She's made it like a fortress. And she spends her time up there. And her parents are, are saying to me, you got to get her out. You got to put her on anti-anxiety meds. You got to do this. And yet this is the way she's coping now with uh, having had COVID. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is her defense. And, you know, I work with, I listen to the parents on the phone. I Zoom them. The girl and I Zoom. Sometimes we all Zoom. Uh, but it's really hard to, to move somebody, you know, from a position during this time of COVID. I've really seen that, that people can get more entrenched in their own ideas because we're all a bit more isolated than mm -hmm. we did before. Mm -hmm. And I think that fear inherently makes people get more entrenched because the entrenchment feels a lot like safety and a sense of certainty, which is what is disrupted at this time, right? And so I think when we challenge that sense of safety, it, it can be really jarring for people. And so we have to practice different techniques for how to approach people. And I mean, this is so cliche, but I, I do think that being able to reflect that you are attempting to understand someone's experience helps break down some of those walls. And so sometimes the work is even just helping parents step back and say, okay, well, how do you get into the headspace of like what might be leading your daughter to behave this way rather than focusing on like, well, she just needs to get out really, as you're talking about understanding that, well, this is her coping mechanism. So like ripping that away from her is just going to make her feel more exposed and that creates more problems, right? So it is a problem that she's kind of holed up in, in her room on, on this bunk bed, but that just like tearing her out of that is going to exacerbate things instead of being able to look at the bigger picture and say, okay, well, what is really going on here? Because I imagine on some level, she's probably trying to protect them from her spreading of COVID or something like that. Exactly. That's what I think, Jen, because her mom also had COVID and mm -hmm. she's very afraid that her mom's going to get it and die. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's in her own mind, she sees herself as, protecting the whole family. Mm -hmm. I mean, where it stands right now, the girl has agreed to see one of her friends who's been pretty much potted, so protected from COVID. Yeah. I should say, all these kids are on online school, which is really common in California right now. I know they yeah. have schools meeting in other places, but all the kids I'm dealing with are really in online school because that's the law, the way we have it right now. So uh, to look at it, uh, she's agreed to see one of the other girls and they're going to get together. They're going to socially distance, walk on the beach kind of thing. But at least it's a bit of a movement out of the bunk bed and into a world with other kids. And, you know, and we've been talking about how she's afraid that she's gonna give 
COVID still to other people. Yeah. Um, and this, this brings us to, you know, this is the, the week where we've been dealing with President Trump's diagnosis and watching, you know, I think about this lovely girl, we'll call her Louisa. Louisa's concerned she's going to give her COVID that she's gone through to other people. And so she stays in her bunk bed to keep us all safe. And President Trump right now had COVID, has had it about a week, diagnosed, exactly. And he's not at all worried about going to rallies, about protecting all of these people. Um, that's another response I've seen. I've seen the people who get COVID who really do not mask. They're kind of a hyper-risk state, and they're out there taking unprotected risk and really, uh, you know, aggressing upon other people with this disease. And we had that experience with AIDS years ago and epidemics. And But I think it's a concern really right now with this group and led by our president. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's such a problem when you have someone that has that much power setting this example because other people see it and they say okay well the president's fine so it's fine for me and it just creates problems on so many levels but i i think a big part that you brought up is that like we've been through epidemics before although obviously not to this scale maybe in terms of shutting down and all of that but you know when when someone's behaving in that way we're not showing that we're learning from these experiences and i i think the other thing that's really important for people to understand that i haven't yet figured out exactly how to describe but it's that you know parading around in this way is is sort of the opposite of the anxious response but it's it's in the same vein it's rooted in fear as well because it it's sort of like trying to pretend like a fear isn't there still means you're paying attention to the fear i don't know if that is coming out all jumbled but maybe you can help define kind of that concept if you agree with it well i i definitely agree because i was thinking about here we saw our president walking up the stairs to the Truman balcony panting. He barely makes it before he rips off his mask and he's trying to show power, but it's really a false show. Yeah. It's really to reassure him that he's not panting, that he doesn't have respiratory symptoms, that he is brave. You know, and he expects us to kind of parrot it back you are brave. You're not sick. You know, we should say all of this. And if we're honest, you know, we see it differently. And we don't want to say that back because it's not true. But right. it's also bad for him and bad for the country. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you're right. There is this type of risk taking that's really along the lines of showing that we have no symptoms, we're perfectly okay. We're not even going to get tested, even though we have the COVID symptoms. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people we're beginning to see who are in that category, too. Um, leadership counts, though. Uh, in California, we have a governor who has that mask on most of the time. And I'm, I'm grateful to Gavin for that. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it is so important what leaders do because people often look to their leaders for direction in times of distress. And this is definitely a time of distress. I mean, I, I thought one thing you brought up that I don't know too much about, but that you have had experience with is understanding the effects of the medication and the steroids and like how that also might be affecting some of his, our president's behavior. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, thanks for suggesting that, Jen, because one of the things I saw, I worked for about 30 years uh, uh, dealing with uh, psychoses and different behaviors related to steroids. And I was called in as the psychiatrist at UCSF to really manage those cases. And we're seeing here that Trump has gotten a fair dose of steroids and is still getting them. And dexamethasone, you know, as used, really makes a difference with a respiratory system like this. And it's really showing up well uh, to decrease the inflammatory response that isn't healthy. You know, so there's some good things about this medicine. But what you see with it is really a, an irritability, you know, which he's showing, a hypomania, you know, which is not a real manic up and down completely like goes to the hospital sort of thing but a hypomanic state where you're up one moment down the next up one moment down the next and you do irritable activities you're very active in this hypomanic period and we also see that with our president and then in addition to that uh, i was always called in because many of these patients had ideas that other people didn't share which is a nice way of talking about delusions. And, uh, you know, again, how do you handle that when we see a president who now has, he's always had a few ideas that are different, as we all do, but now he's got a lot of ideas that other people don't share. And I think we have to recognize really the side effects and effects, first of COVID, and then side effects of the medicine and really take this into account when we go forward in the next three, four weeks. Yeah, I mean, that that's so important for people to understand. I didn't even understand until you brought it up. When I was watching him, I had a sense that he was behaving kind of like a hypomanic person, but I didn't have that vocabulary until we talked about it, you know, but that the tweets that he's sending out and the sense that like everything's great, everything's fine, a lot the the pressured kind of quality of things has exactly too, which is interesting to say because it was already so frenzied with him right but it has really just been taken to a whole other level here and you can see it you know i'm not a big tweeter i've actually learned how to tweet through these four years uh but what you can see with the number of tweets per hour you know who he's reaching out to um, conspiracy themes directed at uh, certain former leaders of our country. Um, there's just a lot of different things that he's involved in right now. And I think back to girls and, and, and young men suffering with conditions of lupus who were on very high doses of steroids, and uh, they weren't at the level that our president is at. But they, too, had ideas like this that were very troubling. And they were not out making the decisions 
that we expect our president to make. So uh, I think we all need to take this into account, think about it, uh, you know, all, all political parties, what's really going on with him personally as we approach this election that's so important to our country. Yeah, and I, I think one other piece that you brought up that we haven't covered yet is really the importance of calling out what is happening and that the doctors around him are really bound by these NDAs that they've had to sign. And so, you know, how how do we get across this information or how do they get across this information that is so important for everyone in the country to know? The doctors are bound by HIPAA, you know, our national, really, health confidentiality system, which is so important. And they're also, he's got them all signing special NDAs. Uh, but HIPAA's the main one that really comes in there. And that's why we, when we do talk about our patients, we really disguise them or we get permission. And we really work in a healthy way to protect them. Yeah. We are not Trump's doctor you know, right now, neither or therapist. So we can comment a bit on him. And really, uh, I think in the service of helping us all understand this, um, his doctors have the final word on this, and they are not able to comment. But I think it's very concerning about the medicines he's taking, the side effects they are having, and what we're actually seeing uh, in terms of uh, his current state. Are you there? Uh, yeah. So uh, it's uh, it's really an interesting uh, subject. And I think an important one for our country right now is for everybody to be aware of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is so important for people to be aware. And I think part of the issue is that so many people, so many of all of us are being kept unaware of so many things. And and having to figure out how to find out what the truth is on our own is itself kind of an exhausting process. One of the other things that we've talked about a little bit, I've had at this point a number of patients who've recovered from COVID. Uh, I've worked with them and uh, I also had a daughter, you know, I think we talked about it who had COVID. Um, one of the common things I see that I think uh, President Trump may also have, though we don't see it, is some survivor guilt. You know, they've lived through this really tough disease. And it reminds me of the patients years ago with AIDS, those who made it through, who survived. And, you know, they had a lot of friends and family who died of it. Um, this is similar now. Uh, you know, some of the families I've worked with, they feel guilty about having made it through. And there really isn't a place that we can talk about it. With our president, instead of saying, you know, I'm strong, that's why I made it. If you're strong, you survive. Um, that really belies the point that fortunate people survive. Some people die, some don't. And we don't know what makes the difference there always. And it's not always that the strong survive. Sometimes those who get the medicine survive, early diagnosis survive, low contagion factors survive, you know, good uh, pre-existing conditions survive, but mm -hmm. it's not that the strong survive. So I think really looking at, 
you know, this uh, question of survivor guilt, how people feel, uh, it's really important because we now have 8 million people who've experienced AIDS and have survived and more. I mean, there are more out there. Uh, so this is a big group to really look at and help them with some of these feelings they're having. Yeah, so when you're working with a client who is experiencing survivor guilt, what are some of the things that you do to help them manage that? I think first pointing out that many have it. If you've survived this terrible epidemic, uh, you have it. And I was thinking about a conversation with the daughter that I had mm -hmm. last night who has recovered from, and she's doing great things after this. She's amazing. But she had a lot of anxiety right after getting it, as many people do. You know, will I get through it? What's it going to be like? What are these symptoms that I'm having now? All of that. And then it morphed into a kind of depression, you know, a low-grade feeling. I won't be able to accomplish what I need to accomplish. Some of that is what you see in survivor guilt, that there is the feeling that you can't go on and live and accomplish what you want to do because those other people right beside you who got the illness died. And you are going to limit yourself because of this. Now, paradoxically, we see our president who is at the opposite end of this. He may feel that, that he survived. It was a miracle, as he said. And his survivor guilt gets twisted around. There's a fancy word for that in our field called reaction formation, where things get twisted upside down. And instead of saving, saying, you know, how lucky I am, I can't believe this, I made it through, I feel for all of you who have this, he says instead, I'm special, I'm strong, that's why I made it. You know, and it's, it's really not the right way to look at this situation. <laughs> it's a self-justification kind exactly. of Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And maybe right's the wrong. I don't want to use the right word there, but yeah. you know, it's not a complete way to look at it. It's not that helpful, really, for anyone in terms of a perspective on it. Because there's a lot of factors that play into surviving this illness. Well, we, we were actually before this talking about the book I'm reading right now, When Things Fall Apart and Pima Children. And I think one of the things I'm really taking from it that I love is this message that we really have to allow ourselves to be courageous enough to sit with the discomfort that comes up in these experiences instead of trying to brush things off, which is one of the ways that our president, you know, the reason for reaction formation and all of that is as a defense mechanism instead to really stop trying to defend ourselves and say okay what am i really looking at here and obviously that's not an easy process but i do find that i think that's a big part of what therapy is about and that through that experience you experience a real sense of liberation from whatever is going on for you so whether it be managing the survivor guilt and working through what that really means for you and what does it mean that you're alive and the person next to you wasn't, right? I think those are questions that sometimes people just don't even want to think about. Absolutely, Jen. And that's a hard one. It's a hard question to consider. Why am I alive and the person next to me really isn't? Especially if it was a family member, 
and especially if you believe that you might have infected them. Yeah. You know, I go back to little Louisa in her bunk bed and, you know, she doesn't want to go out and infect anybody else. Mm-hmm. And she fears, I think she infected her mother, you know, so there's all these things that kind of go on with this, our, our fears with this. Uh, but it's a, a really good time to look at this you know, and to try to look a little deeper into our feelings about being alive at this time. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've really kind of played around with in my mind is, you know, what is the role that fear plays? And how do we look at it so that we can shape it or allow it to influence us in more beneficial ways and avoid some of the more challenging you know, anxiety symptoms that come up for people and things like that. And what I realized is that fear is the emotion underlying it is really about drawing our focus. So fear gets us to focus on what matters. And it's our job to kind of look at and evaluate, well, what does really matter in these moments, right? And so, for example, Louisa sitting in her bed is understanding the importance of relationship and the parental child relationship and it's also getting overwhelming for her though because she's now taking on this responsibility that isn't hers right and so it's understanding that fear really on some level is there to help us but it can get unmanageable and so how do we help kind of shrink that so it's in a manageable place and so for example her being able to hang out with her friend is wonderful because relationships are so important to our lives and and are part of what help us manage things like anxiety. You help me, Jen, with that because I go back and really I, I see it that way too, that it's too much of a burden often, survivor guilt, you know, and you take on a burden that really isn't yours to bear. And that's what we have to help so many of these people who are struggling with this recover from, you know, because they do carry that and talking about it, identifying it and letting go of the burden. And we should help them with their burden. Those of us who've not had COVID, we need to really reach out to the others who've had it and really work with them. And this was true in the AIDS epidemic, too that there was a lot of survivor guilt with the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, and that sense of building community, right? Seeing that you're not alone and feeling this way, which is one of the things you brought up at the very beginning, I think is so powerful to all of us. Well, on that last comment, we'll uh, probably stop for today, but it's an ongoing conversation really in our country and our world today about dealing with these issues behind the mask and, uh, you know, really what is going on for each of us right now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. Come on.